Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. It's great to see you guys this morning. We're starting a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to pick up uh, walking through together uh, over the next several weeks the Sermon on the Mount. Throughout uh, history, at different times and different places, especially in the United States, we use this phrase counterculture. And a counterculture is really any point of dissonance or distinction or difference that a culture or our own group of people develops kind of against the mainstream. It's an alternative value system. It's a group of people who collectively say together, we're not for that anymore, we're for something else. And so we've had examples, of course, all throughout history. The hippies of the 1960s who decided they were for peace, uh, not for war, an alternative value system. And then that led right into the punks of the 70s and 80s. If we go back even further in time, the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th century is really a countercultural movement uh, to reclaim reason and science and education and the arts. Of course, right now we've got an alternative value system countercultural movement and cryptocurrency. Maybe you didn't know Bitcoin uh, is a countercultural movement. It's saying we don't want to do things the way that public banking has done it before. We want to establish our own system of value and finance. When we get to the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus lays out for us is a counterculture. He's describing in this closest thing to a manifesto that we get from Jesus, a way of living that is countercultural to every society and every mainstream culture that has ever existed. It's an alternative value system and it's for a people. In other words, Jesus isn't just describing something in abstract. He's laying out how to be a people, a part of his counterculture. Now, the values of this system are based on this big concept that's woven all the way through Scripture, God's kingdom. Sometimes we see it in the New Testament is written the kingdom of heaven. Where we're talking about the culture of a people who are ruled or reigned under God himself as king. So God's kingdom isn't geographic, but it does have values. And so if we talked about the United States, we'd say, oh, the United States has some values, we value hard work, maybe historically, I'm not sure, currently. We value freedom. We place extreme importance on the individual. And likewise, when it comes to God's kingdom, we would say that it has certain values. But the difference is that this kingdom is open to anyone and anywhere. You don't have to belong to a certain people or a certain country or a certain ethnicity or a certain geopolitical environment. This kingdom of God is open. And so when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is explaining to us is this is what it looks like to belong to God's kingdom or God's counterculture, the people that God is developing. And so it's really two things. It's an announcement first. An announcement that God's kingdom has arrived. In fact, right before we get to this passage in Matthew, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm inaugurating now this new kingdom, this new way of life. 
Not only is it an announcement, but really it's an invitation. And so when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we are reading Jesus' invitation for us to live according to God's design in God's world and for his people. He's developing a counterculture. So let's read it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is Jesus. And Jesus, he opens his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed, for, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The first thing that we notice, or maybe that should pop out to you in this particular passage, Jesus starts a Sermon on the Mount, is this word, blessed. Most often we think the word blessed of as divine favor. What we mean when we use the word most often is if God is happy with me, or if God is so pleased with me, if he's happy, then what he's going to do is something nice for me. And so we're like, hashtag blessed, I got a new car. Hashtag blessed, we were just able to redo the kitchen. It's Instagrammable, you know? That's, the, that's often the way we use it, kind of like a, we, we think of God like a young man who's so infatuated with his new girlfriend that he buys her jewelry. Blessings. And God gives us all sorts of things in the normal way that we think about it, and so we often say blessings are rewards for our good behavior. Now, for, those of, uh, for, for me to explain to you what's actually going on in the Beatitudes, I'm going to have to hurt your feelings a little bit. And this might hurt your brain just a little bit, but I need you to hang in there with me. In Hebrew and in Greek, there are a variety of words used to describe the one word that we always translate as blessed throughout the scripture. And not all of those words mean divine favor. Uh, in fact, some do though. And so Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, God shows up on the scene. Remember, Abraham hasn't done anything necessarily to capture God's attention. And God shows up and says, well, I'm going to bless you with a son and a land and a people. What's God say? Out of my own good grace, not because you've done something to earn, and Abraham, I'm going to give you my favor, my divine favor over your life in these specific ways so that you will be blessed. But... That's not the word used in the Sermon on the Mount. The word used in Greek is makaros. In fact, there's a makaros-isms that Bible scholars use to describe this sort of use of the word. We translate it as blessed, but the word is not divine favor. It's more closely linked actually to the word in Hebrew shalom, which means what? Peace. But is it the way we think of peace? No, it's not. It, shalom means in the Hebrew Bible, worldwide flourishing under God's care. As Americans or Westerners, when we use the word peace, we just mean absence of conflict. And so a father might sit in his living room 
with chaos swirling around him and his family and just say, could I just get some peace? I just want to watch the Braves. I'm not interested in flourishing right now. I just want everybody to be quiet so I can hear Brandon Gordon and Jeff Francoeur tell me what to think about the Braves, right? But the Hebrew term is much richer. It's very similar to, we've talked about this before. In the Greek, there are four distinct words for love. But we translate it love every single time. And so we love tacos and we love our wives or our husbands, right? Same idea with this word blessed, this word here. And so the problem that we face is that we don't in English have a good translation for this word. It means something more like the good life, the life that leads to flourishing for you and your entire community. It means something more like happy, but not the happiness like an emotional state, like I just heard some really good news, happy, but happy as in the enduring contentment with your life. It means something more like a vision for living that is good. And so these beatitudes, as they're called, are actually an invitation for you and me into the good life. Jonathan Pennington says this, as a prophet and sage, Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into a way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. Very different than hashtag blessed. In other words, the Beatitudes recognize that this is God's world and God's people in God's world live by God's design. It's more like wisdom literature that we find in the Psalms and the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. This is the way that we actually get along as God's people in God's world. And the invitation then is come and live in this way of Jesus, these Beatitudes. And so they are less a formula for earning God's favor and more a description of what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. These are not actions that you take in order to get God's attention, but they are the character of kingdom people. They reflect the heart of people who have and know their king. These Beatitudes would have been understood in this way by Jesus' original audience and, and ancient readers. The form of these statements would not have been confusing or foreign to them, but they are to us. These invitations on a, to a way that we can embrace a certain way of living that conforms to how God designed his world and how God designed people. And that if we embrace it, it leads to flourishing. So they are not, let me say it one more time, rewards for good behavior. If you read it that way, you will be confused. It's more like on-the-job training. I don't know if you've been around your place of employment for a while, but imagine the scenario that a new hire comes to you and says, hey, what do you think it takes to be successful here? If you're in sales, maybe you go, oh, I mean, if you contact 100 contacts a week, if you uh, treat the boss this way, you know, he loves positive feedback. He doesn't love negative feedback. So if you could frame it positively, uh, if you uh, could... Uh, I found, I found this is helpful in how to close the deal. 
What would you be describing to that person? Not guarantees of success or rewards. You would be saying, in general, success in this company comes alongside you when you have these certain behaviors or you do it a certain way. It's what Jesus is saying. It's what these are. Ways to live or to be in God's world. Now, our struggle with these is very real. Since we don't have this phrase in English, think about what this means. For centuries, English speakers don't think in terms of conforming ourselves to God's reality. This is not just about the way you thought about this last week. This is the history of our people. No, 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 we're much bolder than that. And we see that clearly in our current Western society. We believe that we can conform reality to us. And so in this way, these beatitudes are incredibly countercultural. And I don't just mean our current climate. I meant almost everything you've ever known in the way that you even think about the world. Since we don't have language for this way of thinking, we often don't understand these concepts because we're shaped by our language. Do you understand that? Because we often, most of us, think verbally, this is strange, a strange way of thinking for us. And so we struggle with it. We want clear, concrete promises. We want it to be formulaic. If I do blank, then I'll receive blank. We want changes in our circumstances, not our character. We want the good life that isn't dependent on what happens to me and, and how my circumstances change. We, we, we don't think this way. And that means we struggle. That means when you open up the Beatitudes, most often you go, cool. But this is Jesus' way, and what he teaches us in this counterculture is a way that actually leads to human flourishing that is counter to almost everything that we know. Let me explain it this way. Thanos, right? Thanos believes he is leading the world to human flourishing, right? How is he going to do it? By eliminating half the population and reducing the strain on the universe's natural resources, Jesus is teaching and believes that when the inward character of a person reflects the values of God's kingdom, people will flourish. You see the difference? Coming out of the enlightenment, something that we embrace currently is education. What do we say? Education is a way to human flourishing. So we do all sorts of educations in all sorts of different places so that people will know what's actually going on around them. And we believe that is the hope of the future. And Jesus would say, actually... Human flourishing happens when God's people conform their hearts to who God is. Politics. We currently believe human flourishing will happen. It is a guarantee if the R's win or the D's win. But for people who are kingdom people, we don't go full on crazy mode when it comes to politics because we believe something fundamentally different. We believe flourishing personally and in community happens when our inward character reflects God's kingdom. When we conform ourselves to God's design for his world, when we conform our hearts to his coming kingdom. So big idea today, like finally you're getting to it, Brandon. Big idea. The blessed life 
is a life spent conforming our character to the culture of God's kingdom. The blessed life is a life spent conforming our character to the culture of God's kingdom. Notice what I did not say. I did not say that when you conform your life to God's kingdom, you will receive blessings. That's not what this is. You are blessed when you are actively conforming your character to the culture of God's kingdom, whether you get the car or the house or the new job or not. That is the life that Jesus is talking about here. That we believe in God's reality. We believe that God designed the world particularly. And we want to conform our character to God's world. So, Jesus gives us nine Beatitudes. We're going to do them in, a, in eight. Hold on. Here we go. You ready? This is what it looks like to be a citizen of God's, of God's kingdom. Number one, citizens of God's kingdom acknowledge their spiritual need. Verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This idea of poor in spirit, D.A. Carson says, poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It is the conscious confession of unworth before God. As such, it is the deepest form of repentance. Jesus is saying, citizens of God's kingdom stand before God and say, I have no spiritual resources in the bank. I need you. So Jesus is saying, Flourishing for you and the people in your community begins when you start with your own spiritual need. Where you recognize how far short of a vibrant spiritual life you fall. We come to God with no resources and nothing to offer. This is the beginning of living in God's kingdom under the rule of the king. Just simply admitting that you need the leadership and guidance and rule of a king in your life that you can't do it on your own. Citizens of God's kingdom recognize their spiritual need. Get rid of the myth of self-sufficiency. You can't become a citizen of the kingdom without admitting your need for a king. And so we come to Jesus, the king, and say, I have great spiritual need. I'm actually spiritual bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. I need help. I need guidance, I need leadership, I need your rule, and I need your reign. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, do you see your own spiritual need? Second characteristic, citizens of God's kingdom grieve brokenness in them and in the world. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. To mourn is to grieve, it is the opposite of rejoicing. What do we mourn or what do we grieve? We grieve first our own sinfulness. We see our own brokenness. Just like being poor in spirit, we go, not only do I have spiritual needs, but I am a spiritual train wreck. My heart is a mess. And I grieve, I grieve the thing inside of me that points me away from God, that leads me to my own self-sufficiency. But not only that, we grieve the brokenness of the world around us. Guys, listen to what Jesus is saying. You cannot find blessing without seeing and grieving the fake happiness of our world. We shouldn't be drawn to it. We should mourn it. 
that our friends and neighbors believe that their Mercedes is going to make them happy should be cause for us to weep. That our friends and neighbors believe that a new marriage with an upgraded wife is actually going to bring them significance should cause us to grieve. The good news is when we see the bottom of our own barrel, we're also much more likely to see how others are in the bottom of their barrel. And so we mourn the spiritual need of our neighbors and we don't blame them. We mourn the spiritual need and the spiritual bankruptcy of our nation. Which means we reject an earth, us versus them mentality, even with our opponents. Why? Because it's broken and we know it and we feel it and it's a cause of grief for us. And then we know Jesus is saying our, our grief over our own sin will not last forever, but that his kingdom is coming where he will restore all people and sin will be no more so we can walk with confidence and we will be comforted. We know we won't mourn forever that the brokenness of our world will be turned into a new heaven and a new earth. And even though that is about what is coming in the kingdom, it gives us comfort now in the here and now. So we grieve brokenness in us and around us. Number three, citizens of God's kingdom are marked by gentleness. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. This word meek means gentle, humble, considerate. Meekness is strength under control. It is desiring the good of others, often at the expense of our own desires. Martin Lloyd-Jones says meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man could think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. Do you see how countercultural this is, the way, the way we live? Instead of embracing meekness, we em embrace a braggadocious way of life where we're constantly trying to prove that we're worth something to others. But the truly meek set that aside and say, I'm amazed you even think I do anything well. I, I appreciate all of this. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example of meekness expressing gentleness and compassion and humility while having all the power in the world at his disposal. We believe that dominance and aggressiveness are the ways to human flourishing. I don't have to prove this to you, right? I mean, can we just look back 2016 to 2023? And just be really honest that we as a church believe that dominance and aggressiveness was the way to a good life for us. Whereas Jesus has invited us into a countercultural way of living. The domineering, aggressive, harsh, tyrannical, it may seem like they rule the earth, but Jesus says it's the exact opposite. That the dominant and aggressive we should see as silliness or foolishness because we know the real kingdom and the real kingdom is not ruled by a heavy-handed tyrant 
but by a gracious and compassionate God. And then we know that God's kingdom is not at risk of being overthrown, but that Jesus sits on the throne and will set all things right one day. I feel like maybe I should slow this down and just say this to you one more time so you're very clear about what I'm saying. If you believe political maneuvering on either side, if you believe domineering behavior or harsh words on either side is leading to flourishing in our country and among God's people, you are wrong. And you're not wrong because I said it. You're wrong because Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Next, citizens of God's kingdom are being conformed to the will of God. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What do we hunger and thirst for? We hunger and thirst for the things that we really want, the things that we need. We hunger and thirst for significance and success and money and acclaim and sexual experiences. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The way throughout Matthew's gospel he uses the word righteous is to mean a pattern of life that conforms to God's will. So what do we say? The good life or the way that leads to flourishing is when we conform our lives to God's will, to his goodness. I want to back up and say this slowly because we often think of this as formulaic. If I do right, God will give me what I want. Jesus is not saying that. Remember, the blessed life is when we conform ourselves to the very culture of the kingdom of God. He is saying, in doing what is right, in longing for what is right, you are in that moment experiencing the good life, whether you get the rewards or not. It is the reward. We see righteousness then as citizens of the kingdom, not as uh, an add-on but it's necessary for our very lives, just like we would hunger and thirst for food. We want it. Like we want to eat three times a day. So I adjust my pants sometimes four times a day. D.A. Carson again says, the Lord gives this famished person the desires of his heart. Why? Because what he desires is to reflect the very character of God. Next, citizens of the kingdom are compassionate for the needy. Blessed are, those, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy means compassion for those in need. This is a tricky one often for people to interpret because we could interpret legalistically. This could be where the formula comes in. You could say, if we're merciful, then God will be merciful for us. What's the problem? The problem is it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the word mercy means. Mercy is the loving response prompted by the helplessness of another individual. Mercy is when we show someone compassion that they can't earn or deserve. So how ridiculous would it be to go, oh, if I'm merciful, then God will be merciful to me. Why would God need to be merciful to you if you were already merciful? If you could earn his favor or his mercy, that would violate the very term. Instead, Jesus is saying there is a way of living the good life that knows that you need mercy from God. That's 
That's verse three, spiritually bankrupt, and lives then also extending mercy to other people. That that is the good life. And God's kingdom runs on the currency of mercy. So citizens of his kingdom give, help, come alongside, and don't hold things against each other. And that is this counterculture. It's different. Next, citizens of God's kingdom are sincere. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart, that means sincere in our intentions. John Stott says that is in his, in his relations with both God and man, he is free from falsehood. The person who is pure in heart, he says their whole life, public and private, is transparent before God and men. That at the very epicenter of who you are, the heart, the, the place where your emotions, will, and intellect always meet, that you are true and transparent and honest. See, to see God, we must first be willing to be seen by God. To not be hiding or holding anything back. That we are completely honest about ourselves. And in that honesty, what we find is what Jesus has already taught us in the text. When we're honest about ourselves, we see that we are spiritually needy. The people who see God aren't the people who are bragging about their own goodness. Not the people who are covering up their wrongdoing with their pride. The people who see God are the people who are willing to be seen. This is who I am. This is why the spiritual practice of confession is so important in the New Testament. But because it is the practice, the spiritual practice that goes alongside with being pure in heart. Sincere, honest intentions before God. Next, citizens of God's kingdom pursue peace. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers don't stir up, pursue, or seek conflict, but seek reconciliation. This is relational here, not necessarily political. And so people who do the work to be at peace with others, forgive and ask for forgiveness, are honest and expect honesty from others. And these people, Jesus says, are called the sons of God. Why? Because you look like God. Because God is the ultimate peacemaker who sent his son Jesus in order to make relational peace with you. And when we go to great lengths to restore relationships with others, people look at us and go, they must be followers of Jesus or they must be sons of God. Why? Because they resemble him. And this is, again, the counterculture that Jesus is inviting us to do, to, be, to belong to, to be a people who seek peace. Then finally, citizens of God's kingdom will suffer persecution. These are really two different Beatitudes, but they cover the same topic. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when, you revile, when others revile you, persecute you, and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Living this way, as a citizen of God's kingdom, a part of this culture, counterculture that God is developing in his people will inevitably lead to a clash between two different value systems. There will be some 
irreconcilable differences between us and the people around us. And Jesus is saying, when you are persecuted for doing good, that shows that you actually belong to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. So when you're persecuted for being honest, for being transparent, for your gentleness, for your meekness, for extending mercy, for striving for peace, then those are all actually signs that you're living as a citizen of the kingdom. In that way, suffering and persecution is for your good. Let's go back to the premise. This is the blessed life. This doesn't earn you the blessed life. So think about the magnitude of what Jesus is saying here, that his original audience would have understood that suffering is actually a part of the good life. How crazy is that? That's one of the ways where this doesn't make sense in our brains. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, suffering then is a badge of, a true, of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Jesus says, when they killed the prophets, if you start living God's way, what do you, what, what do you think, man? Not gonna do that to you? We look to Jesus and we see the suffering in Jesus's life. Why would we think that we are above or beyond that? So these things, these marks are what it looks like to live as a member of God's kingdom. Remember, the blessed life is a life spent conforming our character to the culture of God's kingdom. And Jesus actually tells us that flourishing in your life comes from doing the opposite of what we most often see as leading to flourishing. We say, never let them see you sweat. Jesus says, be poor in spirit. We say, put on a happy face. Jesus says, mourn and grief. We say, go get what is yours. Jesus says, be marked by meekness and gentleness. We say, desire advancement and gain. Jesus says, desire righteousness. We say, be a deal maker. Jesus says, be a peacemaker. We say, we seek material comfort. Jesus says, if you're a citizen of the kingdom, suffering is coming your way. This is why blessing is so confusing for us. Because we think we get the rewards of those first category of things for doing good. And Jesus is saying, that category of things isn't even the good life. That is a deceived life, trying to be the king of your own kingdom. If you want the good life, the blessed life, that comes not when you try to bend reality to your own wants and desires. That comes when you start to conform yourself to God's design for God's people in God's world. I love Eugene Peterson. He captures it so well. He says that scripture does not present us with a moral code and tell us live up to this nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. Rather, the biblical way is to tell a story and in telling, invite. What's the invitation? Live into this. This is what it looks like to be a human in the God-made, God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. That's what the Beatitudes are.
So quite possibly today, there's two categories of people, maybe more, but definitely two. Some of us have been led to despair. If this is what it looks like to be a part of God's kingdom, I fall so short of that that I am lost. Some of us walking through the passage started thinking about what happens at work and what our Facebook or Instagram feed looks like or whatever else. And we're like, I, I am not meek. I am not pure in heart. I hate admitting any sort of spiritual bankruptcy. I am not a peacemaker. I'm not any of this. This isn't my life. The amazing thing about the kingdom of Jesus is the king. And for those of us dealing with our shortcomings this morning, the invitation to live like this starts with the admission of our spiritual need in realizing that we need Jesus. So Matthew's gospel doesn't end with a sermon on the mount. It ends with Jesus' death and resurrection. The reason that it ends with Jesus' death and resurrection and not Jesus' teaching is because Jesus' death and resurrection is the entryway for us into the kingdom of God. That Jesus on the cross dies for us in our place because, precisely because we fall short of the Beatitudes. That Jesus takes the full penalty of our sin onto himself precisely because we fall short of this. And that Jesus' death and that Jesus' resurrection are a peacemaking mission to reunite us into a relationship with God. And the way that you get in the kingdom is simply by, verse 3, admitting your spiritual need and then trusting in Jesus to save you. So the good news of the Sermon on the Mount today is that you can come to faith in Jesus the King. And he makes up for all of our shortcomings with his death and resurrection. Second category today is maybe some of us really struggle even though we trust Jesus to live in this sort of countercultural movement. We are full today of false beliefs around blessing and the good life and what we're going to get and how we're going to get it. You ever notice how these little countercultural movements culturally like just roll into each other? The hippies of the 60s gave up on that. So they could like run banks and investment firms and stuff like that. Which then made the next group mad. And so the punks of the 70s and 80s were like, forget you guys. And then the cryptocurrency are like, forget all you guys. Just keeps rolling into each other. The good news about our countercultural movement is that it centers on the king. And if you struggle with it, the answer isn't the new and better system the new and better way. The answer is to return over and over again to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The way that we live as citizens of the kingdom is by knowing the king better. So I just encourage you today, 
Maybe if you're struggling here, break out the Beatitudes this week, read through it and pray, Jesus, could you make me more like this? Jesus, could you conform my character to the culture of your kingdom? Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.